Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. And when I saw, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth, conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Amen. Well, if you have been receiving CDs in the post from me, or if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll already have learnt a little bit about Revelation chapter 5. And you must not think of Revelation as linear history, either in historicist sense or in a futurist sense. I know that the traditional historical position of the Protestant churches, historically speaking, has been to see Revelation as being in the past. And then on the other hand, there are those who would see Revelation as being entirely in the future. Neither of those are likely the case. And maybe in a few weeks' time, if things progress, I may be able to tell you a little bit about the structure of Revelation and where its actual apex occurs. It's not at the end. Revelation's apocalyptic literature. So you see it as a series of scenes overlapping each other, overlapping in time, moving in parallel throughout the church age and out away into eternity to come. Each seal revealing to us something more of God's eternal plan and purpose, and each one ending a little bit further ahead in history until at the very end of the book we have this new heaven and a new earth. 
you want a good commentary in Revelation, I'm going to suggest to you that you buy More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. Um, It's hard to get. It's not cheap. But you should have it on your bookshelf if you're serious about Revelation or about Bible study. Revelation chapter 1, of course, introduces the book, introduces us to the hero of the book, to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 concern the visible church on earth, represented by the seven churches of Asia Minor. All throughout the church age, don't be thinking of them in consecutive be thinking of them as one fitting into one age, one fitting into another age. Every single message applies to us, the message that Jesus sends to them. In chapter 4 and 5, we get a glimpse of worship in heaven. Chapter 4 shows us the worship of Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And chapter 5 shows us the worship of the Lamb, Almighty God, the Savior of the world. And in chapter 5, if you've been listening to the online sermons, then you will learn, you will have learned that only the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for sinners, is worthy of taking a scroll that is in the hands of the great creator of the universe and opening the seven seals that have bound that scroll together. And inside that scroll, is God's plan and purpose for all of history. So our destiny and our history rests in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that it does, and not in the hands of the World Economic Forum or others like it. So in chapter 6, we see those seals being opened, one by one. And we see historical reality in all of its starkness and in all of its severity being unfolded before our eyes. So some of the things I might say in this lesson may not be what you've heard before. And they may be challenging to listen to. But we'll see how it goes. And if I'm invited back next week, then we'll do a sequel to it. I just have two points. These first four seals that are being opened, very often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, seal number two, three, and four are easy to understand. They are judgment being poured out on the earth and being poured out in a logical sequence. And we'll see those in a minute. All we have to do then is to find out when that judgment actually occurs. We don't need too much exegesis for seal 2, 3 and 4. Seal 1 is an entirely different thing. Horseman number 1. So we're going to see the mighty conqueror riding forth and we're going to try and find out who that is and then we're going to see why we must trust only in this mighty conqueror let's look at verse one first of all and john writes here now i saw when the lamb opened one of the seals 
And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts, if you'd been listening to these online sermons, you would have known that those four beasts representing all of creation, four points of the compass, the four winds, very symbolic in the Old Testament. Revelation, incidentally, lots of people see Revelation and explain Revelation or try to explain it in light of Matthew chapter 24. That's faulty exegesis. You should see Revelation in the light of the Old Testament. Hopefully we'll see that a little bit as we go on. Anyway, let's go back to the text. I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth, conquering and to conquer. Now, there's two things that we have to establish here. And the first one is important and the second one is even more important the first one is to whom is that living creature speaking one of these four beasts says come and see and on the face of it you would simply assume that he's speaking to John that he's inviting John to come and to see what God has written in the plan for history Come and see. And verse 2 starts, And I saw. So you can almost join them together and say, This living creature is saying, Come and see. And John came and he saw. Hendrickson tends to disagree. And very many other commentators think along the same lines. That in fact he is talking to the writers themselves. Now this phrase, come and see, in the authorised version, occurs every time one of these seals is opened. The words and see are not in some of the Greek texts, and so the ESV, for example, simply reads the word come. And Hendrickson, writing long before that translation was ever appeared, looking at the Greek text, agreed with it. The Amplified Bible, which I've explained to you before, you can use by way of a commentary, said, Then I saw as the Lamb, Christ, broke one of the seven seals of the scroll, initiating judgment, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out with a voice of thunder, Come! Now that's important, and you're going to have to grasp that. Because when it looked, when for the, the judgments are called out upon the earth, the question is, who is judging this earth? Are judgments simply natural disasters? Or is God saying to those horsemen, Come! And they came. And I saw them coming, says John. And Hendrickson points out that the living creature is calling forth the rider and the horses. And the creation sends forth in a loud commanding voice, Come, and the horseman rides forth. And the command only occurs when these first four seals are opened and the horsemen ride forth. He says John is not being invited to see five and six of the seals being opened. The decision, as they say, is yours. Let's ask who's riding this white horse. And again, there's two possibilities, and they are polar opposites. 
Derek Thomas, in his commentary, um, argues that this could actually be the Antichrist. He says that the devil is a subtle imitator of Christian religion, and he points to first, or he, he says that his ministers often pose as angels of light. Let me point you to Second Corinthians eleven, verse thirteen to fifteen. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I might take the liberty, while I'm here, of referring you to the papal antichrist, who sits in the church dressed in white, to all intents and purposes, looking like an old grandfather, waving at people and blessing people and the, acting as the benign leader of a church. And yet the, the, the traditional Protestant declarations of faith state that there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, well, again, uh, the Westminster Confession and John Owen influencing that and the Savoy Declaration, pointing out that there is more than one Antichrist. He is that Antichrist. He is uh, the man of sin and the son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Derek Thomas, a very reputable commentator indeed, believes that this rider on this horse is a parody of Jesus. He is the Antichrist, someone who looks like Christ, making himself out to be a false Christ. And the very opposite of that, of course, is the position of the Puritans and of Hendrickson and others, is that it is our Lord and Saviour himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hendrickson and others saying here that this horseman uh, is the mighty conqueror who has conquered sin. Let's look at the text in verse 2 and see why they think that. John says, I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him. Now, the first thing that we see is there's a white horse. Lots of white horses around at this time of the year. I saw a man riding a white horse in Saintfield on Friday evening. He's walking down the street with a load of bands behind him, leading his troops. He was going into a famous battle, and he's riding a white horse. And you see these pictures on the side of gable walls. But, you know, that's not really true, is it? History tells us that no one, no serious king, riding into a battle at that time would ever have ridden on a white horse. It would have marked him out. He'd have been a marked man, wouldn't he? He would ride a horse that was indistinguishable from all other horses, you didn't ride a white horse, it would be a target. And yet here's this king riding on a white horse. Why? Because this rider is already assured of the victory. 
The victory, remember, was not won by Christ. In the three days after his death, like the charismatics would tell you, when he did battle against the devil in hell, that's just charismatic fallacy. He didn't win it at the Battle of Armageddon, away in the future. Jesus won the victory at the cross. At the cross. Colossians 2 verse 14 tells us, that he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that's against us, contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. At the cross, Jesus won the victory. That's why he's riding this white horse. Remember, these are symbols. Revelation is all symbolic. And he carries a bow. And his arrows are the arrows of the conviction of sin. He's letting, these are his weapons. He's firing arrows of conviction brought to bear by the preaching of God's word, the declaration of the gospel, arrows which pierce to the very heart of men and women and sting the conscience. And those arrows strike whom the Lord will save. Some people will say, if you believe that only the elect will be saved, why do you preach the gospel? Why do you hand out tracts? Why do you you stand on street corners and proclaim the word of God? Why do you send out missionaries if you believe that the elect are going to be saved? But we simply take the Lord's arrows and let them fly. And he will direct them to those whom he has chosen. And he will pierce their hearts with those arrows. He will strike their conscience and bring them to saving faith in himself. So there's a white horse And the man on the horse is carrying a bow and he's wearing a crown. Verse 2. Crown was given unto him. You know, when we go into battle and we're exhorted by Paul to put on the whole armour of God for we're in a battle, as we'll see. We're in a battle. And we're told that we must take the helmet of salvation To be prepared for this battle. To have our minds guarded. We must be properly prepared. As Christians, we are like the Lord's army. Marching into battle with armor, with the armor of God on us. and, and, And wearing the helmet of salvation. But here's this horseman riding forth to do battle without a helmet. But rather wearing a crown. A kingly crown. The helmet, the the headdress, the emblem of government and of victory. And look at what it says next. For he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now note that in your Bible. You see, that's not just in one tense. Sure it's not. 
this conquering that this king is doing is both now and to come. It's present and it's future. In fact, it's past, present and future. This king conquered at Calvary and conquers every day and will conquer at the last day. He writes out conquering and to conquer. Now, having said all of that, having seen this symbolic depiction of the seal being opened and a man riding forth on a white horse, would you agree with me and with William Hendrickson and with Matthew Henry that this horseman is our Lord Jesus Christ? The mighty victor. Matthew Henry writes this. As long as the church continues militant, Christ will be conquering. When he has conquered his enemies in one age, he meets with new ones in another age. Men go on opposing and Christ goes on conquering. And his former victories are pledges of future victories. He conquers his enemies in his people. Their sins are his enemies and their enemies and his enemies. When Christ comes with power unto their soul, he begins to conquer these enemies and he goes on conquering in the progressive work of sanctification until he has gained us a complete victory. And he conquers his enemies in the world, wicked men, some by bringing them to his foot, others by making them his footstool. You know, I think it's a great encouragement that this first seal that's opened reveals to us, first of all, that there is a mighty conqueror. And here's why I think that. Because in this world in which we live, We must trust only in that mighty conqueror. Because the next three seals are now opened and they're not good news. We're going to get a real dose of realism as this happens. Some people will look at these three seals, seals two, three and four, and they'll say, but isn't this a picture of some future judgment? Well, yes, it is. But no, it's not. All of these judgments are happening throughout history. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, look, let's turn to it. I want you to be sure of this. Let's turn, this is really important. Let's turn to Mark chapter 13. Uh, And we're going to read from verse 6 down. I was going to read it to you, but for the sake of time, but I think it's important. We go back to Mark chapter 13 and verse 6. And let's hear what Jesus said about this gospel age in which we live. Mark 13 and verse 6. Start at verse 5. Jesus began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, 
and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes and earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. These things that we're going to see, these three seals that are going to be opened, are things that have happened right throughout history. You know, like the psalmists, they sometimes ask, why do the wicked prosper, don't we? But God is already pouring out judgment upon this world. It's just that we don't want to believe it. A few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, there was a dreadful flood in the city of New Orleans. There was a DUP councillor up in Balamina who was bold enough, or maybe foolish enough to err his views, to publicly state that the terrible flooding that happened in New Orleans was a punishment from God. That wasn't a popular thing to say. Sure, it wasn't. I'd been in New Orleans. My wife and I had been there for a Christian conference some years before that. New Orleans reveled in its sinfulness. You could pick up a brochure in the hotel we were staying in and you could book the Sin City Tours. You could go on a bus and see all the filth and degradation. They say if you're in New Orleans, you should go and visit the French Quarter. So we walked up to the top of Bourbon Street, and we walked and we found the French Quarter, and we walked into it. It's filthy. Sort of prostitution. Stinking. Stinking. Absolutely smelly. The smell of the of the revelry of the night before, the smell of stale alcohol and drunkenness is everywhere. Disgusting. Thank God we came across one single man standing at the top of Bourbon Street, preaching the gospel all on his own through a microphone. If there was any city that deserved to be punished by God, that's the one. And mind you, we're not far behind it nowadays ourselves. This DUP councillor, I can't even remember the man's name. Maybe you'll remember. He, he said it was a punishment from God and he was laughed at. And he was mocked and he was pilloried and he was condemned, not just by his political opponents, but by liberals and the press and, and by the BBC and, and by Christians so-called. There were clergy lining up to have a go at him, saying things like, there's no way that our loving God would ever flood a city and let people die. And I'm thinking, has he not read Noah? Did he not learn about the time when God flooded the world and everybody in it except Noah and his wives died because of their sinfulness? Because the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth 
And because the intent of the thoughts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. And Somebody will say, well, God promised he'd never flood the world again. Well, he didn't. But he flooded New Orleans didn't say anything in that promise about not flooding one of the most sinful, sexually immoral, corrupt, God-rejecting places in the whole world. He said, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the world. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So yes, God judges this world, and he judges it very often using natural disasters. Now, people don't like you saying that. But think about it for a moment. Think about it logically. If God uses things in my life like sickness, distress, and adversity to chasten me and to bring me closer to him and to make me forsake my sin and follow him alone, why wouldn't he do that on a national level here? I've just realized the clock isn't working. <laughs> I'm sorry. So God is judging the world. And as the sin in this world increases as the end of time approaches, won't God's judgment be appropriate? And won't it culminate in the final judgment? At the last day. Was it John Calvin who said, When God wants to punish a nation, he sends them wicked rulers? Well, if he's correct, then this nation and many other nations in the Western world are very much under the judgment of God. Let's see these three seeds. We'll have to be very brief now because time is gone. Look at it. First of all, look at verse 3. The first of these seals that are open and the horseman rides forth is to indicate it's, an, it's symbolic of conflict. He opened the second seal and I heard the second living creature say, come, and another horse, fiery red, comes forth. Again, you see, this is initiated from the throne of God. These four living beasts around the throne. So if you go along with, the, with Hendrickson and his sort and you think that this is God calling forth judgments upon the earth, then this is coming straight from the throne of God. The living creature saying, Come, and another horse, fiery red, coming out, and he takes away peace from the earth. It's war. And then in verse 5, the third seal is open. And I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and, and a black horse comes out. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. It's scarcity and famine. War always followed by famine and scarcity and sickness and death. And he opened the fourth seal. And I heard the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And him who sat on it was death and hell followed with him. It's interesting. The end of verse 8. It tells us about the beasts of the earth. And in 
John's vision, he would have seen the fallen of war being consumed by the wild beasts as they lay in their fallen state. Conflict, scarcity, famine, sickness, death, Ukraine. And right now in Africa, people are starving, going to starve this year. Because there's not enough grain to do. And in Holland, farmers are protesting today. Their tractors out in the streets because the wicked government doesn't want people to farm their land. They want to create food scarcities. And in New Zealand, they're passing a law, a law that says that cows, if they burp and pass out noxious gases, have to be taxed in case so that we can save the planet, you understand, so you better not have any cows anymore or sheep. And in Sri Lanka today, and bring you right up to date. You probably won't hear this in the BBC, so I'll tell you instead. But in Sri Lanka today, the government has been overthrown. The president has fled the country on board a warship. People have taken over the presidential palace. They've broken into the central bank building. And the reason that they have done that was that all the population of Sri Lanka has risen up in protest against food shortages and scarcities. What is the answer? The answer to all of this, these judgments on this wicked world, Conflict and scarcity and famine and sickness and death. The answer is Christ, the mighty conqueror, who rides forth across this scene of time. From the time that he died on the cross to the day that he comes again. He is the one and the only one whom we can place our trust. And that's why I say it's important to understand that when that first seal is opened, we see the conqueror riding forth. Now, just in case you say to me, but why, as those clergymen would to that man in Balamina, why would God do such a thing? Why would God let these horsemen ride forth? It's because God must punish sin. There was no sin before Adam's fall. There was no war in Eden. There was no scarcity in this world. There was no famine. There's enough food in this world for to feed every single human being that's in it. There was no sickness in the Garden of Eden. There was no death in the Garden of Eden. It was through man's sin. And sin must be punished. 
And that punishment is happening right now. And it will happen when Christ conquers. Remember what it said in verse 2. He goes forth conquering now and to conquer in the future. So what have we learned? We've learned that this age in which we live is a sorrowful age. And Christians are not exempt from that sorrow. Whenever this world is punished, we are part of this world and we suffer too. There are Christians today in Sri Lanka who are hungry. We suffer too. The difference is that as Christians, we have a mighty conqueror in whom we trust. And no matter what happens on this earth, because of sin and its inevitable consequences, we're safe in the hands of that conqueror. Just to reassure you of that before I sit down, it's important. Here's what Paul writes to the Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. Christians, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Here's the good bit. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.